Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this lecture, whether you're here in the lecture theatre in London, whether you're watching this by video, whether you're online. And in this lecture, which I've entitled a little provocatively, The Clockwork God, I want to try and explore with you a way of thinking about our universe which emphasises its regularity and its orderness, and to think about some of its wider implications, including, of course, its religious dimensions. And the person we're focusing on, as you can see, is Isaac Newton, one of uh, Britain's scientific heroes, also, of course, master of the Royal Mint, who int actually introduced the idea of the guinea to kind of way deal with some depreciation in the early 18th century. So let's talk about the background to Isaac Newton. And scholars regularly speak of the scientific revolution, which swept through Western Europe during the 17th century. And obviously, it's very difficult to draw a line and say, here is where this scientific revolution um, began. But some would argue that its origins lie in the work of Copernicus or Galileo. And of course, some would argue it began much earlier, perhaps having its roots in trends in late medieval universities, or of course, the new attitudes towards nature of the Renaissance. Others would suggest that actually there's a philosophical shift that lies behind the scientific revolution. And many would point to the work of, of Francis Bacon, uh, who developed this idea that we would nowadays call induction, the idea that knowledge really begins with experience of our world. And for Bacon, the proper starting point for scientific knowledge is observation of phenomena and then trying to lay down some general principles which might help to explain those observations. But despite all those difficulties about deciding when the scientific revolution began, what the central idea at its heart might be, there's a lot of agreement that Isaac Newton, born 1642, died 1727, played a pivotal role in the scientific revolution. So in this lecture, I want to look at him and explore some of these ideas and see where they take us. Now, in my previous lecture, I talked a bit about the emergence of the heliocentric model of the solar system. And I, I showed you how, in many ways, that opened up some very interesting questions. And one of them was this. Kepler had shown that you could give a good mathematical account of the orbits of the planets around the sun. And Kepler laid down three laws, as you'll remember, about planetary motion. But there was a deeper question which bothered many at the time. What was the basis of Kepler's laws? What deeper significance did they possess? And could the motion of the Earth, the Moon and the planets all be accounted for on the basis of a single principle? And today, scientists are very interested in the idea of a theory of everything or a grand unified theory. And actually, you can see this, this idea beginning to bubble up at the time of Kepler himself. And part of the genius of Isaac Newton was his demonstration that a single principle could be seen as lying behind what we call celestial mechanics. In other words, once you saw this basic principle, then everything about the motions of the planets began to fall into place. And many of you will know these very famous lines from the Pope Alexander Pope who in effect uh, just offers this very short, but I think very powerful, tribute to Newton's significance. Nature and nature's law lay hid in night. God said, let Newton be, and all was light. 
Now, Newton is often presented as a noble monument to rationality and cosmic order, a beacon of scientific orthodoxy in the midst of a still rather superstitious society. And that's true up to a point, but it's a bit more complicated than that, as you might expect. Um, Papers which remained undiscovered and unread until the 20th century offer a more complex picture of Newton as someone of almost pathological loneliness, who was obsessed with alchemy and was fascinated by by theological heresies, above all anti-Trinitarianism. And if any of you have read uh, Robert Eilif's recent biography of Newton, you'll know just how well he's able to use this unpublished material to illuminate the darker, the more complex side of Newton. Newton may well have ushered in the modern period through his scientific discoveries, but I think we have to say he also belonged to the world that has been now left behind. So let's try and make sense of Newton's thinking about the laws of planetary motion. What are they all about? I think the simplest thing, way of understanding this really is to think of Newton as having un- established a series of principles which govern the behaviour of objects on Earth, like falling bodies, and then extrapolating these same principles from Earth to the behaviour of planets, the moon, and so on. And you might like to think, for example, the famous story of Newton noticing an apple falling to Earth. And the basic point behind this is that the same force which attracted the apple to the Earth could, in Newton's view, operate between the sun and the planets. In other words, the gravitational attraction between the Earth and an apple is precisely the same force, though obviously of different magnitude, to that which operates between the sun and the planet or the Earth and the moon. Now, having mentioned this story, I think I'd like to say a bit more about it because it is quite interesting. Uh, Newton and the falling apple. And this, of course, Woolstorp Manor, a National Trust property, actually has there in that enclosure uh, what they think and I suppose hope is Newton's original apple tree, about which I will say more in a moment. So let's look at this very famous story. I mean, I was told this story at school. I'm sure many of you were as well. And it went something like this. A young Isaac Newton was happily sitting in his garden when an apple falls on his head. There's some moment of devastating illumination, presumably caused by the the apple hitting his head. Uh, And in a brilliant moment of insight, Newton invents his theory of gravity. And it's a wonderful story. And as you might expect me to say, like so many wonderful stories, there's an element of truth in it. But it might be a little bit more complicated than that. Newton, to the best of my knowledge, himself left no written account of being hit by an apple or even having observed an apple falling as some kind of epiphanic moment. What we do know is this. Newton left Cambridge because of an outbreak of the plague in 1666. Those of you who know, Elizabethan, Jacobean and beyond England will be aware this was always a problem. And so Newton went to get away from a centre of population and went, in effect, to his mother's house, uh, Woolstorp Manor, uh, out in the countryside. And while at this family retreat, um, there's no doubt he was considering the problem of gravity, eventually showing that the force force of gravity decreased as the inverse square of the distance. So how do apples come into this? Well, 
we, we have two accounts of how they may have come into it. Neither is written by Newton himself, and both date from 50 years after the event. One of these is written by John Conduit. Uh, here he is, John Conduit, who was the husband of Newton's niece and who became Newton's assistant at the Royal Mint. Now, here is what Conduit wrote. In the year 1666, Newton retired again from Cambridge to his mother in Lincolnshire. That's right. While he was pensively meandering, it's a lovely phrase, isn't it, in a garden, it came into his thought that the power of gravity which brought an apple from a tree to the ground, was not limited to a certain distance from earth, but that this power might extend much further than was usually thought. Now, that actually makes perfect sense in terms of what Newton thought. The difficulty is it dates from much later. And one of the questions we have to ask is whether he got this from Newton at a later stage in his life, and Newton may have kind of retrojected something into his earlier period. The second of these accounts is written by William Stukeley, who's the author of the first biography of Newton, entitled The Memoirs of Sir Isaac Newton. And Stukeley, uh, who was also a native of Lincolnshire, spent some time in conversation with Newton in the 1720s, shortly before his death. And they were both fellows of the Royal Society, and on one particular occasion in 1726, they dined together in London. And here is, in modern English, what Stukeley recalled of that conversation. After dinner, the weather being warm, we went into the garden and drank tree, tea sorry, under the shade of some apple tree. Amid other discourse, he told me he was just in the same situation, i.e. under an apple tree, as when formerly the notion of gravitation came into his mind. Why should that apple always descend perpendicularly to the ground? Uh, he thought to himself, occasioned by the fall of an apple as he sat in contemplative mood. Why should it not go sideways or upways, but constantly to the earth's centre? Assuredly, the reason is that the earth draws it. There must be a drawing power in matter, and the sum of the drawing power in the matter of the earth must be in the earth's centre, not in any side of the earth. Now, again, you know, there are some nice phrases there which show that Stukeley has got the basic idea of Newton's idea of gravitation. He refers to it as a drawing power in matter, and that actually is a pretty good description of what gravity is. But again, this account is written down 60 years after the event. And scholars do wonder, and you can't blame them for wondering, whether there's a degree of creative embellishment going on here. Not on Stukeley's part, but on Newton himself trying to, in effect, um, you know, take what he knew now and then projecting that backwards to his youth and linking it with this idea of an apple tree. And, of course, I ought to say this, um, because the picture of the apple tree came from National Trust. Uh, Woolstock Manor is now owned by the National Trust, and if you go there, you'll be told that same apple tree uh, still grows to the front of the house in sight of Newton's bedroom window. And, in case you're wondering, it's a cooking variety known as the Flower of Kent. However... I'm not here to persuade you to visit Woolstock Manor, but you should, I'm sure, it's very interesting, or to join the National Trust, or even to make a pie out of the flower of Kent. So we'll just move on now. So let's not worry about how Newton had this idea. Let's think about what he did with it. 
And Newton initially concentrated his attention on uncovering the laws that governed motion. Many of you have had to learn the three Newtonian laws of motion at school, and these established patterns of behavior here on Earth. And Newton's critical assumption was simply this. The laws that govern what happens here on Earth also affect what happens beyond the Earth. In other words, they apply both to terrestrial mechanics, but also to celestial mechanics. And Newton really began to work on his planetary theory uh, in 1666. And he basically showed that, for example, Kepler's second law could be easily understood if there is a force between the planet and the sun directed towards the sun. And again, he showed the first law could be explained if it was assumed that the force between the planet and the sun was inversely proportional to the square of the distance between them. And many of you you will know this formula, that basically any two material objects, um, bodies, let's call them P and P dash, with masses M and M dash, attract each other with a force F given by that formula. G is the constant of gravitation, the two masses and then divided by the square of the distance between them. But the point is that Newton saw a pattern. He realized that what he saw on Earth, the pattern he saw there, could be extended in terms of its application and went much wider. It explained far more than just what happened here on Earth. And so Newton went on to apply these laws of motion to the orbit of the moon around the Earth. Again, on the basis of the assumption that the same rules that apply on Earth apply in dealing with the moon orbiting the Earth. And Newton was able to calculate the period of the moon's orbit on the basis of the assumption he was out by 10%, not because his theory was wrong, but because the then assumed distance between the Earth and the moon was actually wrong. If you put the correct distance in, you get the right answer for the moon's period of orbit. So Newton's theory then basically were grounded on the basic concepts of mass, space, and time. And each of these concepts can be measured, and they're capable of being handled mathematically. If any of you have read the, the burgeoning scholarly literature about this period in intellectual history, you'll know that the phrase, the mathematization of nature, again, the mathematization of nature is widely used because there's this realization that you were able to represent these forces and predict their outcomes using mathematics. And Newton, of course, played a very significant role, not simply in developing mathematics as a technique, but also in applying it to questions such as the ones we've just been looking at. And on the basis of these fundamental concepts Newton developed, he was able to show that there was this this model, this pattern, this way of thinking, which made an enormous amount of sense about our world. So I'm not going to say much more about Newton because you need to read about him rather than hear me going on about it. But the point I want you to appreciate is that Newton was able to demonstrate that a vast amount of observational data could be explained on the basis of a set of universal principles. And Newton's successes in explaining terrestrial and celestial mechanics led to the rapid development of the idea that the universe could be thought of in terms 
that actually embodied this regularity. And this is the idea of the clockwork God, the clockwork universe, a mechanical model of the universe characterised by regularity and predictability. And this way of thinking about our world is very often referred to as a mechanistic worldview, in that the operation of nature is very often explained by the core assumption that our world, the universe, is a machine which operates according to fixed rules. So in many ways, that's one of the key ideas I want to emphasise in this lecture. Obviously, models are helpful in allowing us to think about more complex realities and in thinking of our universe as being in some ways like a clockwork machine. You are clearly illuminating some aspects, for example, its regularity, but you're also creating other assumptions about nature, above all this slightly disturbing sense that it is simply a machine. But nevertheless, Newton's age liked this a lot. Why? Let me tell you. The idea of the world as a complex, regularly functioning machine immediately suggested the idea of design. I mean, machines don't just happen. They have to be designed and they have to be constructed. And for many in the 1690s and beyond, Newton's demonstration of the regularities of the universe and the capability of mathematics to represent these regularities was actually seen as reinforcing religious belief. God was the one who made this clockwork universe and imposed upon it regularity, and therefore there was a synergy between the idea of God and the way in which the universe operated. And Newton himself was supportive of this interpretation, although he didn't actually press it very far. Later writers began to question this, and I'll talk more about this um, later in this lecture, pointing out, for example, that if you made a machine which was totally self-contained and self-sustaining, well, you know, a god may have brought into existence, but there was no longer any need for that god to continue if the machine went on functioning. But that idea wasn't really held in the 1690s. It begins to emerge about a couple of decades later. So initially, Newton's work was seen as a splendid confirmation of the existence of God as the creator of a structured and regular universe. So obviously, we need to think a bit more about that analogy I mentioned. We all use analogies to think about complicated things. And this is the great cathedral clock of Strasbourg, uh, rebuilt in 1574. And basically, it included not simply equipment which allowed you to tell the time, but also it showed you the phases of the moon, all kinds of information. And it was seen as a kind of um, monument to the information technology of the age. And it was widely used as a kind of analogy. Um, the universe is like a complex mechanism, like this one, which in effect bring together two key ideas, the idea of design and the idea of construction, that there is this idea, it's brought into effect, and you, this is the kind of result you see. And the implication is that this is a helpful and legitimate way of thinking about our universe. 
So the kind of emphasis we find in the 1690s on the divine ordering of the world, which emerges from the mechanical philosophy of Newton and his school, was widely seen as offering a form of religion with maximum intellectual plausibility and minimal social divisiveness. I'm going to emphasize that point because there are scholars of this period in English history who talk about the Newtonian synthesis. I want to explain to you why that is because I'm not just talking about ideas from science which have a religious implication, but they also had a social implication. And the point that Newton was making in effect is we live in a world that is regular, that is governed by law, scientific and religious and social. And many scholars have pointed out that in the 1690s, which was a very unstable period in British politics, think of the Glorious Revolution, William of Orange, things like that, that actually Newton's way of looking, not just at the world, but at society, emphasized its orderedness, the need for stability. And writers like Margaret Jacob, for example, would say this helps us to understand how Newton's appeal went far beyond the simply scientific domain. So we think of this as a very important development, but it's also important for another reason. And this is the emergence of a way of thinking about God which is summed up in that slogan I mentioned right at the beginning of this lecture, namely, the clockwork God. The clockwork God. According to Newton and his followers, God could be thought of as the divine clockmaker who had constructed a particularly elegant piece of machinery and made no demands of anyone other than a due recognition of the order and beauty of the creation and its implications for the stability of the social order. And so we find that an area of thought, which I've mentioned before, what we call natural theology, began to be seen as a way of enhancing social cohesiveness in the late 17th and early 18th century. And the basic point being made here is that Newton saw this way of thinking about the world as, in effect, if you like, developing a big picture of reality which embraced science, religion, and the social order. Now, Newton himself played a major role in developing this. Not as if we kind of look back to Newton and then see his system being developed by those who followed him. This is very much something that is there in Newton's um, own thinking. And Newton, for example, was very, very clear that the regulation and maintenance of what he called this most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. And so we see here Newton, in effect, taking Bacon's idea of induction. We see these observations If we try to make sense of these observations, what is the most reasonable conclusion? And for Newton, the most reasonable conclusion was that there was some kind of God who created this order and expected order in return at the social level. And Newton remarked that the physical ordering of the created order was clear evidence of God's most wise and excellent contrivance of things. So clearly, there are interesting points that we could follow through here. And certainly, one of the ideas that does 
hang around in Newton's thought, and is certainly there in earlier generations, is that in some way the discipline of mathematics, in other words, this tool that Newton both developed and used to try and make sense of his observations of the world, that mathematics might itself be almost like a natural language or perhaps even the language of God. It's a very interesting idea. There's a quote from Kepler. Um, it's, it actually helps us understand some, some aspects of Kepler's scientific thought. He makes certain very easy transitions in his thinking, which actually are quite difficult to make if you don't have certain assumptions. And in this quote, which I put on the screen, he tries to explain what those assumptions are. Here's what he writes. In that geometry is part of the divine mind from the origins of time, even before the origins of time. Um, What is there in God that is not also from God? It's provided God with the patterns for the creation of the world and has been transferred to humanity with the image of God. In other words, if I can put it very simply, that there is this intrinsic mathematical rationality to the universe and there is something about us as human beings which means we are able to uncover and represent this rationality using mathematics or, in this case, um, geometry. And Kepler uses that essentially religious idea in his own um, writing. And Newton is known to have picked up on some of those themes. But the kind of natural theology that emerged from within Newton's synthesis really emphasised the regularity of the natural order. And it's around this phase in intellectual history that the phrase, the laws of nature, again, the laws of nature begin to emerge. We use that phrase a lot, but it has an historical origin and it really begins to become important in the late Renaissance and is used extensively by Newton himself. And again, for Newton, it just seemed if there were certain laws, then you had to think of a lawgiver. And again, my point is that Newton here links scientific, religious, and social ideas about how our society ought to be run. So clearly, there are some very interesting ideas here that need to be developed further. And one of them is the kind of notion of God that emerges from this. And certainly, there is um, no doubt that the idea of the universe as a great machine proved to be very fertile, very generative for a generation of thinkers in the early 1700s. And basically the argument, which I've already given to you, would go something like this. We think of the world as a machine. And that means that the most natural way of thinking about where this machine came from is to think of a designer and a constructor. And that, of course, is a way of thinking about God. But, of course, this is not a straightforward idea. And so what I need to do is begin to note some critics, some problems in this approach, as we begin to look at why it began to fall from favour. For a start, there were those who disliked the use of mechanical models at all. 
for example, the, the movement called the Cambridge Platonists, which uh, you may know, it's Henry Moore and others, basically felt that, that machines were ugly. And this failed to do justice to the beauty, for example, of the natural world. And so many writers, including the Cambridge Platonists, disliked mechanical models of the universe in the first place and yearned to go back to older models of nature, which were very often organic, thinking of the, the universe as some kind of interconnected organism, almost paralleling the human body. Seeing this as a much better way of explaining the intricacy of the natural world, but also allowing you to reflect on its beauty. And that, I think, was a significant consideration for many. Ugly machines, beautiful nature, there is a sort of dissonance between those two ideas. Uh, another Cambridge Platonist, Ralph Cudworth, argued for the harmoniousness of nature and saw this as being much better expressed in purely mathematical terms. And of course, being a Platonist, he saw a direct correlation between the perfection of mathematics and the perfection of some supreme being who he elided with the Christian idea of God. So that was one concern that, in effect, this is not a particularly helpful way of thinking about God. But there were other ideas that began to emerge, beginning to raise some questions. And the point I want to emphasize here is that this way of thinking, which in the 1690s was seen by many, if not most, as being supportive of the idea of God, actually over time, without the idea itself changing, began to be seen as being disconfirming. In other words, this is not something that sits easily with, um, for example, the Christian idea of God. So I'm going to try and explain how this change in perception took place. The amalgamation of um, you know, religious and scientific ideas that we find in Newtonian natural philosophy certainly proved both popular and plausible in England during this period of political instability and uncertainty. But I have to say that Newton's amalgam of science and religion was also unstable. Um, it is best seen, I think, as a temporary convergence of vested intellectual and social interests. And it wasn't really long what scholars now refer to as, I quote, the estrangement of celestial mechanics and religion. Again, the estrangement of celestial mechanics and religion began to set in. So let me tell you how this happened. And I think it's, it's a very natural line of thought, which I think you'll find no difficulty in understanding. Basically, Newton's idea of the world as a machine was initially read as saying, this is all about ordering, regularity. Therefore, that is exactly what we expect about God. So it resonates with the idea of God. As time progressed, the emphasis shifted from regularity to self-sustainability. In other words, here's a machine that has been constructed and can keep going on its own. In other words, you know, why, why do you need a God now? Maybe someone created this, yes, but there's no longer any need for God. 
And what we see happening here is this idea of, of God's a clockworker explain the physical universe, positively emphasizing its regularity, but increasingly the idea of a machine being able to look after itself began to displace that emphasis on regularity and hence began to lead the way into what you and I would nowadays call naturalist or maybe materialist ways of thinking about the universe. And so the scene is set really for quite a significant religious change. And this is the rise of the movement that we sometimes call deism. Now deism is one of those words that we use and then project backwards on um, the period. And the term deism, which derives from this Latin term deus, meaning God, is widely used in scholarship to refer to a view of God which maintains God's creatorship but denies a continuing divine involvement with or any kind of special presence within the natural order. And it's very often contrasted with theism. Theism, which is a term used to describe an understanding of God, which in effect allows for ongoing divine involvement in the world. And the origins of this movement um, are thought to lie in the late 17th, 18th centuries. And um, John Leland introduced this word deism in 1757 to refer to a group of writers, including uh, Herbert Jarbery, uh, Thomas Hobbes, and David Hume. Um, I think it is fair to say that these writers did not think of themselves as belonging to any particular a group of people, and they did not use the word deism to refer to themselves. So what Leland is doing is saying, here is a sort of common set of ideas he discerns using the word deism to refer to itself. And what I want to emphasize is that actually people began to come to the conclusion that it was deism which was the natural outcome of Newton's ideas, not the more complex Trinitarian God of Newton. And you will know, of course, Newton was very critical of the idea of the Trinity um, for reasons which are not to do with rationality. It's more he felt this was an idolatrous idea. But nevertheless, this movement is very significant. And certainly this movement began to grow quite influential in England in the 18th century. And you will find writers um, such as, um, for example, John Locke in his essay concerning human understanding, in effect laying what in effect was the philosophical grounding of this whole idea. Because John Locke, in that very influential writing philosophy, argues that reason, I quote, leads us to the knowledge of the certain and evident truth that there is an eternal, most powerful, and most knowing being. Full stop. In other words, that you know, we are dealing with a distant, eternal, omniscient God, but it's much more what we would now describe as a deist conception of God. And incidentally, I mean, Locke's ideas were very influential in much of Europe in the 18th century, and there's a lot more that needs to be said about this than I can say in this lecture. But Locke, I think, is, is really talking about a simple idea of God, one that resonates very naturally with Newton's way of explaining things. So to its critics, deism, in effect, reduced God to a mere clockmaker. God won the work up, 
world up, left it to run unattended. Now, Newton himself, I don't think, actually held to the idea of God, but nevertheless, his ideas were easily assimilated to this. And the point I'm going to emphasize again is that we need to see how the rise of this mechanical worldview has religious implications. Because the Newtonian model of the universe, although initially seen as kind of a resonating Christianity, really came to be seen as much more naturally leading to a more philosophical, a reduced idea of God simply as a creator. And this incidentally lay behind this very interesting move in the 18th century to rediscover a natural religion or a religion of nature, which had attractions because it had no priesthood and did not get involved in politics. You can see immediately there are a lot of converging ideas arising from this. So if you look at a book like, for example, Matthew Tyndall's 1730 work, Christianity as Old as Creation, Tyndall is basically arguing that Christianity is simply, Tyndall's quote, a republication of the religion of nature. Again, a republication of a religion of nature. In other words, these are just basically natural, rational ideas about God, which kind of way are expanded, amplified, inflated um, by Christianity. And so you can see that Newton's ideas really began to filter into that. So what I've talked about mainly thus far is the physical aspect of this. In other words, we're looking at Newton as he engages the question of the physical universe, the physical aspects of it. For example, the way in which bodies move on Earth, the relationship between terrestrial mechanics and celestial mechanics. But some of you will be saying, well, of course, you know, that, that, that's all very well, but you know, there's more to nature than physics. After all, you've been talking about apple trees. I mean, what about the biological realm? Surely we need to talk about that as well. And Newton himself didn't really do this, but many in Newton's day did. And perhaps you won't be surprised to know there were many writers who said, well, of course, you know, we can, we can look at physics, but actually it's the biological world which is really interesting. We might think of a very famous work by John Ray, who in 1691 wrote a book that some of you may have come across, The Wisdom of God Manifested in the Works of Creation. And this very interesting book is basically almost like a work of natural history. It, in effect, describes and takes delight in the, the, particularly the, the plant life of England and then asks us to make the logical transition from the beauty and complexity of the biological realm to its origins in God. Now, it's a line of thought which um, proved really very influential um, and really what we're looking at here is um, the, possibly the most influential um, account of this, which is by William Paley, who spent the final years of his life up in the city of Carlisle. And a lot of um, the analogies he uses in this um, very well-known work, which is widely read in the Victorian age, in effect are, are derived from his experiences of the Cumbrian landscapes. So William Paley, who was Archdeacon of Carlisle, wanted to, in effect, take Newton's ideas and apply them 
to the biological realm. So he began with that word that Newton uses on several occasions. The word is contrivance. Contrivance. Now, to us, the word contrivance, I think, is is a slightly negative word. If If I were to say to you that his argument was very contrived, it means it's kind of way over elaborate. It's rather forced. It's rather artificial. But for Newton and for William Paley, the word contrivance is a good word. It has very strong positive associations. And contrivance basically means the process by which something, for example, one of the great machines of the Industrial Revolution, is in the first place designed and in the second place constructed. So think of this idea of contrivance as bringing together two possibly unrelated ideas, being designed, being constructed well. And Paley's argument is going to be that the complexity of the biological order is of such an extent that it has to be seen as being contrived. Now, many of you will will know Paley's works, and um, particularly this analogy, which stands at the heart of Paley's monograph, and it's that of a watch. And uh, Paley borrows this from uh, earlier writers, but then, of course, they borrowed it from the great cathedral clock of Strasbourg, which they kind of way reduced to a piece of pocket machinery because this was seen as being a, a, a remarkably helpful illustration of the points that Paley wanted to make. So this is a passage from the opening of that book in which he sets the scene. And many of you will recognize these words or certainly this argument as I read it to you. He begins like this. In crossing a heath, supposing I pitched my foot against a stone and were asked how the stone came to be there, I might possibly answer that for anything I knew to the contrary, it'd be never ever. Nor would it perhaps be very easy to suppose the, to show the absurdity of this answer. But... Suppose I had found a watch upon the ground and it should be inquired how the watch happened to be in that place. I should hardly think of the answer which I had given before that for anything I knew, the watch might have always been there. And he goes on to develop this and the point he's making is there's something different about a watch. It's not a stone, a demonstrably natural occurrence. There's something about it which makes it stand out. And the question is, what is it? Now, Paley then um, spends several long pages commenting on every aspect of the watch. And if you're interested in the history of watchmaking, you know, this, this is going to be great fun for you because every single bit is described, is functioning, ascertained. And I find it a little bit dull, but some of you would really like it. But the point he's making is every feature of the watch was designed for a purpose. And to his argument, in effect, is that God contrives this universe, especially its biological components. So in effect, they show evidence, A, of design, and B, of construction. And Paley's argument is, in effect, that contrivance implies divine design. That's the key point he makes again and again and again. 
Now, if you've read this book, I mean, it, it is actually, actually beautifully descriptive of, for example, the human eye, um, some aspects of rural England. It's really quite interesting. But there are points at which you, you, you just feel a little bit uneasy. This is Paley dealing with the problem of evil. And he's saying, actually, it isn't really a problem, is it? Um, let's, um, uh, let's, uh, let's go there. I mean, it is a happy world after all. The air, the earth, the water teem with delighted existence in a spring noon or a summer evening. On whatever side I turn my eyes, myriads of happy beings crowd upon my view. And I'm, I'm sure some of you would just feel perhaps uneasy about that, as I do. But anyway, the argument basically goes like this. And let's just go back to these points here. Um, basically, um, we, the watch must have had a maker. That's one of Paley's key points. And then it goes on to say there must have existed at some time and at some place or other an artificer or artificers who formed it for the purpose which we actually find it to answer, who comprehended its construction and designed its use. So it's a very nice statement. But again, I think you can see some of the concerns you might want to raise here. Just looking at that text, I think you can see two issues immediately, which Paley does address later in his argument, but actually there are real problems. Look at the first point. There must have existed an artificer or artificers. Does Paley's argument lead to one creator or to multiple? Not clear at all. And Paley will, will argue that it's much simpler to believe that there's simply one creator. I'm sure he's right. But nevertheless, that needs to be shown. And also, yes, indeed, there must have existed at some time or other either a creator or creators. But does that mean they still exist? And again, Paley will engage that question. But you can see immediately that there are questions we'd want to raise about that. So basically, Paley's key argument is that contrivance proves design. Um, and the predominant tendency of the contrivance indicates a disposition of designer. All of these suggest that these designs are for beneficial purposes. Therefore, this gives us an insight, not simply into the fact that God creates things, but that God is benevolent. So how does Paley deal with evil? I showed you a quote a moment ago which raises some awkward questions. Here is um, Paley reflecting on this. Evil, he writes, no doubt exists. But it is never that we can perceive the object of contrivance. In other words, God doesn't deliberately create evil. Teeth, there's an interesting analogy. Teeth are contrived to eat, not to ache. Their aching now and then is incidental to the contrivance, though perhaps inseparable from it. Uh, or even, if you will, let it be called a defect in the contrivance, but it's not the object of it. Now, again, I'm lecturing on this passage once, and uh, I was going to the dentist the next day. And I have to say to you, you know, I, I, I did feel that there was a lot more need to be said than what Paley says here. <laughs> so what Paley is trying to do in this book is to, in effect, say, look, Basically, the biological realm, like the physical realm, is complex. It shows that it simply cannot, cannot happen by accident. 
And again, many will say, well, you know, you can see how much of a problem Darwin's theory of natural selection will be for Paley. And that is so. In fact, there are some very interesting scholarly books about Darwin's origin species, which suggest that actually he was mimicking the style and the argument of Paley to make sure he got through to Paley's readers. So it's really very interesting in terms of how Darwin himself is thinking. But actually, even setting Darwin to one side, there are real problems with this. And let's look at, let's look at an English poet. This is Lord Tennyson. And this is from his poem, In Memoriam. And again, many of you will know this. It's a very moving poem. It's all about the death of one of Tennyson's best friends. But in it, there's this reflection on nature not being a happy place, but being full of suffering, bloodshed, and violence. Look at this. Man who trusted God was love indeed, and love creation's final claw. Though nature, red in tooth and claw, with ravine shrieked against his creed. In other words, look, you know, when you look at nature close up, the picture you get isn't quite as nice as Paley suggested. And that, I think, is an important point. Because clearly, um, Tennyson is expressing deep concern about this. No, I'm not saying Paley's wrong. He's just saying it's, it is terribly simplistic. Nature is complex. There are much deeper issues that Paley skates over. And these really need to be addressed if we're going to make much sense of our world. But for me, I think one of the best critiques of Paley is due to John Ruskin. We don't read Ruskin as much as we used to, but I have to say he does repay study. In my view, he's one of the most interesting intellectual and cultural figures of the Victorian age. Here is Ruskin in that very important collection of early works called Modern Painters, reflecting on Paley's argument. He does not mention Paley by name, but it's obvious he has him in mind. And I will tell you the context here. What Ruskin is asking us to do is to look at a beautiful Scottish landscape. And the point he's making is that superficially it looks beautiful. There, there are mountains and there are trees and there are streams. Really, really nice. When you start looking more closely, you see there's a darker side. And that darker side is just not addressed by Paley. So off we go. This is Ruskin describing this beautiful scene. It's a little valley of soft turf enclosed in its narrow oval by jutting rocks and broad flakes of nodding fern. From one side of it to the other winds serpentine, a clear brown stream dropping into quicker ripple as it reaches the end of the oval field. And then first islanding a purple and white rock with an amber pool, it dashes away into a narrow fall of foam under a thicket of mountain ash and alders. The language is lyrical. It's all about the beauty of nature. Then death and decay intrude. Beside the rock, in the hollow under the thicket, the carcass of a ewe drowned in the last flood lies nearly bare to the bone, its white ribs protruding through the skin, raven torn, and the rags of its rules still flickering from the branches that first stayed it as the stream swept it down. In other words, look, it may look beautiful. When you look more closely, death and decay, and there is more. At the turn of the brook, I see a man fishing with a boy and a dog 
A picturesque and pretty group enough, certainly, if they'd not been there all day starving. I know them, and I know the dog's ribs also, which are nearly as bare as the dead ewes, and the child's wasted shoulders cutting his old tartan jacket through, so sharp are they. So you can see the point that Ruskin is making, that you cannot just look at the nice bits of nature. Whatever your worldview is, it has to be able to accommodate the good bits and the bad bits, if I can put it as crudely as that. And basically, Paley doesn't really seem to do that very well. So the question, therefore, would be, can you modify Paley, or do you need to start again from somewhere else? So I think I need to end this lecture Now, in this lecture, what I've done is focused on this general theme of the clockwork God, in effect, focusing on this idea of the regularity of nature, primarily at the physical level, but also beginning to transition into the biological realm as well. And, of course, in this lecture, I've turned to focus on those aspects of the world which allow its complexity and regularity to be discerned. And of course, that helps understand why these mechanical models of our world began to become so influential and helps understand why the analogy of a clock or with Paley, a watch, proved so influential. And I would say that, that I can understand where Newton and Paley are going, but I do think we need to say that you need multiple models to do justice to the richness and complexity of our world. And of course, many of you will know Samuel Taylor Coleridge's real concern about Newton's vision of the world, because he talks about Newton being, listen to this, sheathed in dismal steel. Again, sheathed in dismal steel. In other words, this is, this is simply a machine. Where is beauty? Where is emotion? Where are the deeper human virtues which seem to be, in effect, overlooked or occluded by this mechanical view of the universe? So, obviously, there's much more I could say. But I want to move on now, because in this lecture, what I've done is really focused on the world and ways of understanding that. But in my next lecture, what I want to do is look at human nature and try and reflect on how we can make sense of us. Because you remember Ruskin and the landscape. There's some lovely bits and there's some not-so-nice bits. In some ways, that applies to human nature as well. So in my next lecture, next month, I look forward to talking to you about how we make sense of human nature, trying to understand who we are, and the kind of ideas that begin to flow out of that. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening. (laughs) 